Dotnet Rocks, episode 1416, with guest Ian Cooper. Recorded Friday, January 20th, 2017. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. Still in London. Happy in London. Happy in London. So uh, this is day three of recording for us. Mm-hmm. And uh, just one more left after Ian. Yep. And then we're headed off to Copenhagen. You know, uh, here at the conference, you did a keynote I did. Uh, on the Humanitarian Toolbox. Mm-hmm. And Bill Wagner, speaking of Humanitarian Toolbox, was, was walking around. And I saw him just an hour ago, and he told me, that the Already Project, yes. which you guys are doing for the Red Cross, That's I guess. That's the Red Cross know? Project, yep. Um, they're using Poly, mm. which is curated by AppV Next. And I know that what the area that they're using it in is they're calling out to these various services for authentication and for message sending and so forth. Mm. And those things sometimes fail. They sometimes go down. <laughs> yes, yeah. they do. So it's a really good place to have a policy in, in place where uh, if the network goes down, you can... Do a number of retries, yeah. or you know, exponentially slow down the retries, and all that stuff. You would end up writing yourself. Why not just use a library for it, yeah. right? To have good retry policy and recovery policy. Yep. And stuff. So, so that's I'm great. glad they're using that thing. It yeah. makes me happy. Yeah, Carl and Richard strike again. There you go. All right. Uh, well, let's roll the music for Better Know Framework. Awesome. All right, dude. What do you got? And, uh, you know, I almost wish that music this week was replaced by the Imperial Death March because I've got a Death Star grinder. <laughs> Is it for grinding Death Stars? Uh, no. Yeah, it's made from real Death Stars. <laughs> it would be a big, big grinder. Yeah, it's a custom-designed grinder that looks like a Death Star, and it's for grinding... Uh, like pepper grinder. Herbs and... Yeah, it's a pepper grinder. You could also use it with herbs or whatever. Without leaving chunks behind. It's kind of a nice shape, you know, being a sphere as a grinder. Yeah. It's, good. it's it kind is. of cool, actually. It's cool. Yeah, easy to use. And yeah. it happens to look like a Death Star. So when you get tired, you can sort of uh, look at someone and say, now experience the full power of this operational battle star. The only problem that I see is you sort of have to unscrew it to get the ground pepper out, which is a little like a Turkish pepper grinder. You know yeah. how oh, they have okay. those things in the bottom right. you just pull out? Yeah. Yeah, so... So it's interesting. It's interesting. All right. uh, it's more like a conversation piece. Uh, it's more like I, I have all the other Star Wars memorabilia. Why not round it all out? That's <laughs> <laughs> funny. Man. Would you like fresh pepper, sir? <laughs> <laughs> With a little force. That's funny. Uh, all right. Who's talking to us, buddy? Uh, grabbed a comment off of show 1400 from earlier this year, January. We talked to Phil Hack. And that was that uh, whole critical code, that scientist.net. Yeah, uh, conversation. This particular comment uh, talks a little more, a little broadly. This is from Jim Vaughn, who uh, I know has been listening to the show for a long time. I was checking to see when the last time we sent him a mug it was, and I don't think we ever have. But okay. I see conversations going back to like 2006. All right, uh, and he says, uh, "Yet another great show. This one hits remarkably close to home for me. I'm on a team that is tasked with rewriting a 30 year old Cobalt system in C sharp. Oh boy, 30 years old for Cobalt is just not that old, actually. Yeah." Uh, while the rewrite itself can be challenging, many of the people on .NET side haven't even looked at COBOL, much less understand the quirks. We also face the issue of retraining devs that are not at the end of their career, but have never done anything other than procedural COBOL. Wow. That would be amazing to sit down and talk to someone who is, re- who is a professional programmer, but just procedural COBOL. Right. If we were writing in .NET 2.0 style, it would be difficult to teach them the new skills they need, but we are writing this in a way that takes advantage of the latest C-sharp features. And part of the reason we are taking that track is we are not wanting to do a major overhaul in just a few years. I think in this case, the rewrite is worth the effort. The Cobalt Code is expensive to maintain in terms of dollars, but also development time. Yes. And also, it is very difficult to find new developers working willing to work on such a system. Yeah, it's true. Much less finding anybody with any experience. Yeah, it, this is a problem as as software ages and as the developer population ages, there are less and less of us around that know. You know forget about COBOL. We're talking about you know Windows Forms and yeah. classic ASP and even ASP.NET. Yep, I, I think you're totally right. I did encounter, did do some work. It was, I guess it was last year with a company that 
the COBOL developers are all getting ready to retire and they really, really, really want to be able to retire. Yeah. Some of them have already had like contracts extended and they're, but they're working diligently with the teams to migrate workloads off the, the old machinery and this old code base so that they can, you know, walk away with a clear conscience. Who's it? Fujitsu that has a COBOL.net? Do they still <laughs> That's have That's right. Yeah. yeah. You could do a not net implementation of that old code if you really wanted I to. I have no idea how that would work. I mean, it's something, um, isn't it? It is something. I mean, it, you have to have access to the data to be able to use the language. And I'm not sure how that works. Ian's yep. sort of scratching his head, too. <laughs> it's, um, well, the banks, I think they're saying in the UK that the banks have a bit of a critical problem that, uh, they've all got their systems written in COBOL years right. ago and they're terrified of attempting to port their systems over to newer technologies simply because of the risk involved. Sure. But effectively, everybody is, uh, as you say... The risk of remaining is climbing. Off, uh, work at least, yeah. and the number of people that can maintain their software is rapidly declining. And yeah. that, uh, We had a huge outage a couple of years ago, lost all of our ATMs, because they, tr- they tried to get a new team in who didn't understand the quirks, the, right. the kind of loving, the loving way that some of these, um, I mean, they these were using tapes. Are built. Sure. Uh, oh, yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah. Well, Jim, we are all reacting strongly to your comment. <laughs> we all got chills, I think. Yeah. Uh, so thanks so much for your comment. And a .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com or via any of our social media because we publish every show to Facebook and Google+. And if you comment there and we read it on the show, we'll send you a mug. And definitely follow us on Twitter. I'm at Carl Franklin. He's at Rich Campbell. Send us a tweet. We format them with spaces, not tabs. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> Stick that in your cobalt pipe and smoke it. <laughs> it was all spaces back then. I know. So let's get Ian on here officially. Ian Cooper has over 20 years of experience delivering Microsoft platform solutions in government, healthcare, and finance. During that time, he's worked for the DTI, Reuters, SunGuard, MySys, Beasley, and Huddle, delivering everything from bespoke enterprise solutions shrink-wrapped products and cloud services to thousands of customers. Ian is a passionate exponent of software craftsmanship and agile architecture. When he's not writing code, he's also the founder of the London.net user group and speaks at events throughout the UK. Welcome back, Ian. Hey, guys, good to see you. Hey, um, it reminds me, uh, the, um, talking about my, my, uh, my life, uh, and you guys talking about uh, Polly at the top of the show. Oh, yeah. Sure. I work on an open source uh, project called Brighter, which is right. a um, CQRS framework. And if you go to GitHub and look for Brighter Command, we've just moved to a nice organization model. And so we have two elements, Brighter and Darker. Darker is our query side and uh, Brighter is our command side. <laughs> That's great. And <laughs> we, do, um, we do a piece where effectively we take a command and we route it to a handler. Uh, and when you can do that in process or we can do that over uh, a queue. So you can basically throttle. So we can use a work queue pattern and mm-hmm. we make that very seamless to you. Just write the handles and the commands and you do a post if you want to send over a message queue and you just send, send it directly. But we use Poly for retries and we right. have a little, little syntax for putting attributes on your handlers so you can perform orthogonal operations. And one of them is called use policy. Nice. And use policy lets you plug poly in, so you run your handler in the context of a poly policy. So I we, think that's a great implementation of poly because you know I often get asked, how do we reuse our policies? And they're just objects, right? Right. right yeah. Attributes is a great way to reuse them. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, 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 I don't know how you would handle. You still have to handle the eventuality of it timing out, you know, and so there still has to be some sort of call wrapper around it. But uh, I'm not sure how to handle that in an aspect-oriented way. So well, we, well, we have a pipeline, essentially, of filter steps. And each filter step, such a Russian doll model, handles the one in front. Oh, okay. And we tend to end up, in a lot of cases, with a, um, uh, a sequence of policies. So you might have a timeout initially and a retry and then yeah. a, even a circuit breaker. Yeah. And we actually also let you write a fallback. So if yeah. it, when all goes wrong, you can, you can, you can essentially do, do, take some kind of process operation. Right. All right. Um, and we're very inspired by um, uh, Hystrix, which is yes. from the Java platform and the guys at Netflix wrote. Um, so, yeah, definitely. Well, that's great. I'm glad you took a dependency on Polly. That's a, we hope, hope we don't let you down. No, it's great. <laughs> we love the project. So yeah, um, It's a great project. And that's what open source should be about, right? We should yeah, build sure. each other's work. Right? Absolutely. We're excited about it. Yeah. yeah. It's very fun. 
So uh, we had such a great show with you. Uh, I think it was well, last year. Maybe it was the year before. The Hexagonal Architecture Hexagonal. Oh, it was the first yeah, one. That's yeah. a couple of years ago. Yeah, it is. It was an eye-opener. Yeah, just a different way, to, different way to think about things. And then what was the last year's now? Because it's, it's sort of every NDC what, London what we see lo- you, right? What was I talking about uh, last Service NDC. Discovery. Oh, yeah. That was yes, yeah. that's right. Very prescient, too, because the, this conversation since then about service, I think I reference your, your thoughts a lot. Just be, because the modern app now sort of has to discover itself, right. you know, and as it comes up. And it's interesting today. I've seen quite a few people talking about um, self-discovery. And, of course, the big thing that's happening now is people who are tending to use Docker mm-hmm. are doing essentially auto-registration into their console service when their Docker containers spin up. There's basically things you can do like Registrator. Mm-hmm. Registrator effectively lets it spin up. And uh, particularly, uh, and it's one of the things I've demoed in my talk here, is if you're um, using, say, for example, Nginx as a load balancer, or effectively, or a reverse proxy in front of your .NET Core website. So nowadays, we live in a world where I could run on Kestrel, not right. running under IIS, so I'm yeah. just exposing port 80, and that's wonderful. I can serve requests on port 80, but I can't do things like HTTPS termination, SSL termination. I can't set static files. And uh, one thing you can do there is you think called console templates. So when you containers spin up under Docker, you actually add them into your Nginx configuration file, and then are automatically discovered. So that stuff's really, really taking off. Right? Sure. Oh, yeah, it's great. very powerful, right? Yeah. And, and it's all stuff I remember thinking about in the context of stuff like Enterprise Service Press and these widely dis- distributed heterogeneous systems. And now it's just becoming the norm f- within an app. Right. You know, exactly. this is the yeah. way a really well separated app looks like that can be individually updated, scaled, and, and uh, tested and separated. But they have to be able to assemble themselves, essentially. Right. So I, mean, I, was, t- I was talking about um, 12 factor apps this time, but it's part of a overall idea people are calling cloud native. Mm-hmm. It's not about cloud native is saying, hey, how should we build our apps yeah. if we're going to deploy out to um, containers, mm-hmm. be that con- containers around something like Docker or something else, or even a container in the sense of a serverless, basically, so sure. this idea of uh, Azure functions, functions or AWS Lambdas, they yeah. set up a container for you and you run your item inside it. And even PaaS, which is an older model, is really the same kind of thing. Sure. Uh, and there are a number of kind of key pillars that's our cloud native. There's microservices. We've all kind of like had the microservices hype by now. So yep. there's API first. So API first is really, in a sense, contract first. The idea that, that when we build these services, the way that they should talk to everything else is by a contract, mm-hmm. an API or an interface. And that could be a REST mm-hmm. API, but it could also be, yeah, exactly, an interface. It could be a message contract that you've defined for messaging. Sure. Um, this notion of what they call, I think, uh, is a nice term for it. It's like agile, uh, application infrastructure. Mm-hmm. It's a lovely terminology, isn't mm-hmm. it? Which just really means it's more modern notion that I, as a developer, I think, I think post this DevOps world, what happened was developers are exposed to like, setting up machines. Yes. And then they go, well, that's a lot of hassle. Yeah. <laughs> we should can automate we just, that. Can we just declare the whole process and basically get machines on demand? Yeah, <laughs> so that's yeah. really what that is. And that's things like being a Docker compose file, et cetera. And it's not, you know, I'm coming to appreciate that it's not just devs going off and doing ops's job is that when ops and devs sits together for a while and talks through what's a scalable, repeatable architecture yeah. where operations doesn't have to review it every flipping time, yeah. suddenly you have these externally defined things in the form of containers or serverless or anything like right. that where they're like, anything you want to run in there, fine with us. Yeah, it's so kind of like the, the IT guys are, are saying, you know, if we only had some sort of way that we could just make this easier and the developer said, oh, maybe I could write something. This yeah. is the third, the third goes around that basically good developers are basically lazy people. Yeah, yeah that's and, right. And, uh, they look at what the ops guys are doing and they say, gee, that's you quite a lot of work. work. way too hard. <laughs> Let's make that easier for you yeah. so we don't have to do it either. Uh, and, uh, I think it's very true. Um, and so there's, there's also this idea effectively of anti-fragility comes into cloud right. native, which is, which is a kind of strange paradoxical process which says, the more something is stressed, the more resilient it becomes. Yep. So it's one of these ideas is chaos monkey. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the ideas is uh, also is things like um, uh, uh, synthetic load. So uh, Just Eat, one of the sponsors here. I've got some friends who work at Just Eat. Just Eat's a big .NET um, yep. uh, site. Effectively, quite a big success story for a .NET startup out here in the UK. It was right. one of our 
biggest ever IPOs in the UK. Wow. And um, those guys essentially put synthetic load on their servers. Mm-hmm. So that essentially at peak demand, when everyone suddenly decides to order pizza in the middle of some big television event that they were anticipating, they can actually just take the fake load off and know that essentially they will they will survive the well, yeah, sure. load. Yeah. And that's basically anti-fragility because you're putting your system under stress to actually make it more resilient. Sure. Which yes. is a kind of weird well, it, paradox. It's interesting. Just to know that this thing can handle this much. And, that yep. you, yeah. and also that you, and I'm coming this from an ops background too, I know what failure looks like. Because things don't just die. Right. right. They tip over. And if you can see them early in the tip, because you know what the profile of, of failure is, you can, you know, encourage stability right. or at least get yeah. everybody in place. So there's another talk I do, which I didn't, which I don't do here. It's called Safe at Any Speed, which you can probably find online. I think if you search a few places, there's me online. And you may Ralph see online. Nader involves, references? Yeah, safe yeah. At any speed. Yeah. That's it, involves, awesome. it involves me throwing juggling balls at those various people over time to simulate <laughs> nice. like uh, things basically moving. And um, we talked about, uh, talking talk, talk that about some of these kinds of ideas like retry, circuit breaker come up in that conversation okay. yep. um, uh, kind of again. But this idea of saying uh, you've got some strategies. One is prevent. So that's all the good stuff we want to add to do, TDD, solid, all that kind of yep, stuff, right. and training. And one, another one is detect, right? Because things are going to get through. We have to kind of accept that things are always going to get through. Sure. Um, I've, I've yet to write a perfect system. That might mean I'm just rubbish at this job. <laughs> I'm a new one. But I've yet to write a perfect system. So things do get through. And yeah. then the, the, your first step is being able to detect it, right? Because then you can try and stop chain failure. Because if this little component over here goes, yeah. maybe I can do something about it up the stack to yeah. actually respond to that issue. But you're absolutely say. right that there it's usually a cascade. Right. You know, one thing tips the next thing. Yeah. So I talk about it, for example, I, I, I reference in that talk, I reference air disasters. And, you know, mm-hmm. modern aircraft are very well built, but when they go down, yeah. it's well, usually a cascade failure. Yeah, anything that actually kills people on a commercial airliner is the minimum of three failures. Right. right? It's just that's the way the system's designed. It takes a bunch of mistakes, yeah. and often human ones. So uh, getting back to your 12-factor apps, yeah, yeah. were you just sort of just then going through some of the factors? Is, is that uh, it? 12-factor is a little bit different. 12-factor app says, if I'm going to deploy to things like uh, these kind of containerized environments, what kind of approaches do I need? So mm-hmm. there's, a, there's a simple set of rules, right? Uh, we can talk a little bit about the design rules, first of all. What we're saying is, really, we want basically to have an app. And they, the rule is, essentially, it binds on a port. But what really, that, that sounds a bit complicated. But the, the idea is to say, my app simply says, I'm going to listen on, say, an HTTP port. I'm going right. to listen to a message queue. or I'm mm-hmm. going to watch a file. Mm-hmm. It has some kind of event that essentially kicks it off. Mm-hmm. And the idea is to tra- try and avoid putting our apps inside application containers. And we do that a lot less in .NET land than Java land, guys do. But mm-hmm. IS, in this context, is a app container. Yeah, it, it became an IS, an app right. container, really. And when you get into container models, Model, those things, those heavyweight things are a bit more complicated because sure. I don't want to deploy one of those into each container. Mm-hmm. So it's easy to have those sit outside. So something like HA Proxy or Nginx that sits outside yeah. and manages all my individual containers. So in, say, .NET Core, you do the, use Kestrel, for example. Effectively, right. and just spin it up and listen to a port. And if you do, if you, the Python guys use something like Unicorn or whatever, effectively in different worlds, the same thing. Yeah. And then essentially we say, okay, right, and that individual process, right, needs to have a couple of characteristics. One is, so the, the old uh, uh, one is basically it should be um, stateless. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by Stackify Prefix, an insanely cool and transparent and free profiler for developers. It runs in the background and catches bugs, including exceptions that get caught and thrown away before anyone knows you wrote them. Get detailed traces of every request. There's no messy configuration or code requirements, and best of all, it's fast and transparent. Hey, did I mention it's free? And not free like a puppy, free like beer. Download it now at prefix.netrocks.com. And by stateless, we mean you should be state aware in the sense that you should store your state in a database or something like that. Yeah, no just sticky, not there. No <laughs> sticky sessions, right? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And then the other thing, effectively, is you should scale by by introducing other processes, new, new copies of it, right? Mm-hmm. And as I have to say, you can't use some threads inside your application if it's appropriate, mm-hmm. but that shouldn't be how you choose to scale. Right. And if you take these ideas, right, and also the other, thing, the other, the other one of the other factors is basically start up fast and shut down gracefully. Right. So okay. I can spin up new instances quite quickly. And yep. this leads to you being elastic, right? Yeah, sure. So but now we're also using the process as the scale point. 
Right. You, you're yes. getting away from some complexity here because your processes are starting up quickly and, and, and dying gracefully. Yeah. You, it's okay to have more. Right. Yep. I mean, one would argue it's not the perfect utilization of the hardware, but it's maintainable. Exactly. And there's, there's an elastic notion which says, um, I can always spin up a new instance yep. because I, I don't, the traffic won't necessarily come to a sticky session. I'm just spinning up an additional port, which is managed by something else effectively, which is going to probably referring to basically console again. We're going right. to have some auto registration effectively spinning that thing up. Mm-hmm. And essentially, because we're just introducing a new, a new process, it's relatively, which starts up quite quickly. It's relatively easy to do. And when you look at the container models, particularly containers are essentially sandbox processes running in a, host sure and so those With are really OS great ways effectively of managing the resources is to have additional containers so you can utilize the resources so if i've got a big box mm-hmm. rather than having to rely on virtualization and vmware and all that i can just run a host machine in docker or and stop a new container or i hand it off to azure functions they just do that job for me right sure. they just say we're running a container for you just have a function and that function is essentially your port equivalent in this model of 12 factor yeah, yeah. that's your entry point which is spinning up stuff nice. and that gives you scale right mm-hmm. so that's one of the first 12 factor and the other side I talked more about management it says things like for example um you know have one repo which represents your app Okay. Right, one one source of the truth. Yeah, exactly. Right, right. and you get that app down effectively, and multi- if you have a distributed system, they, that's, that's multiple repos, right? right? Mm. And there's some debate over effectively if I spin off a couple of processes. So we for, are talking earlier about, you know, you've got a, the queue where your workload comes under HTTP, and you spin something off our message queue to, to be basically to a backend work, a kind of worker process. Is that one or two? I say one. I say one if you're basically still talking to the same database. Mm-hmm. So if you're a CI boundary, if you're a continuous integration boundary, I'd make that one. Okay, and then so it's not just the code either. Then it's the configuration. It could be schema for for data. Yeah, exactly. Everything you need. I mean, they they talk about putting in basically if you've got maintenance routines, for example, put them in. You know, and and I like that. uh, Mm -hmm. And and that stops developers. We we had we had an issue at one point where you know the maintenance routines all lived in in ops infrastructure bucket rather than yeah. So it's developers who change the schema, and they forget to go and change the maintenance script that ops used that that had dependency on that schema. Right. Stick all together, everyone. Well, and then yeah, like you said, you had dependency between two repos. Now they're both broken. Effectively, right, exactly. They're crippled. It should be one. Yeah, and then the other things they talk about effectively is you know clear dependencies, right? So generally mm-hmm. package management, right? Effectively, so clear set of dependencies. And the idea effectively is I can go onto a machine. The machine just has basically a runtime in a language, and I can install the dependencies I need in that machine. And that's speaking to containerized environments where right. I can get a small little container up and and then effectively just load on the things I need. Yeah. And then the one that's a bit weird is configuration as environment variables. Okay. And then that one freaks people out a bit because we're all, we all that, like our lovely config files. Yeah. But, um, well, the, the point they're trying to make here, a few points. One is actually I should build a release artifact and it should be immutable. Right. So when they talk about config, what they mean is things that vary by environment. Yeah. And right. most of the stuff doesn't vary by environment you want to put inside the code. Quite often you'll find if you're deploying to some of these containerized environments, you don't really have persistent access to the file system. Right. And so it's easier to actually manage a whole other stuff in code. And, and so it doesn't, it never hits the file system. Right. It's all in memory and it's not, it's yeah. not even if you could look at the files, you wouldn't find any secrets. Right. So if you launch a Docker container or you launch your, your, your AWS Lambda or Azure function, you're quite often configuring that environment when it's brought up. So the easiest thing to do is set some environment variables mm. and right. you can just reference those. Again, .NET Core I mean, built for these kind of scenarios. There's a lovely solution. There's a configure uh, class. You can add, essentially, different types of configuration, like files. And one of them is called add environment variables. Mm-hmm. And in fact, you will go and look up an environment. And one, one trick is you can make that one the last. So if you wanted to, basically, in your own local machine, still use a config file, but rock it as easy in setting environment variables. Right. Put that one last, and in other environments, you can use environment variables. Sure. And so then, and you're... You're, are you talking about basically defining, hey, this is a dev execution, this is a test execution, yeah, this right, is a production exactly. execution? Uh, I mean, you, you can use environment variables. Obviously, you can put them into your IDE, you yep. can run a script to it, but people find that more convenient. There's a way to overcome that kind of Sure. So when you're talking about 12 factors, you've basically broken down all the things you need to think about when, yeah. when containerizing modern apps. Right, exactly. Yeah. And then the last set, too, one in which they have processes, the one when we haven't talked about logs. So yeah. the other is you log to standard out, which basically, again, there's no file system quite often for you to log to. It's not that persists, so your logs can get lost. Also, in the modern microservices world, you've got loads of processes that are all right in their own logs. Can, how, can you, how can you find anything? So now we sure. log out, and we go to some kind of log aggregator, right? Yeah. So the Elk stack's very common here, yeah. right? Um, where everyone's pushing out their stuff, basically, to Elk, and then you can review it. So what you need to do is have things like 
correlation ID to write in your logs. Mm-hmm. So effectively, I can track a request all the way through my various processes, and I can go and search for it and see what's happening. And that right. gets back to the idea we were talking about earlier. You know, application monitoring tools are now becoming more sophisticated, and things like logs really right. basically are getting well, easier to use in those models. Yeah, the challenge, of course, is like like you said, it's about how do I make sure that for that I can get a sense of end to end inside of the app through these log right. files. What are the tokens I'm passing that show up in each log file? So we say this is actually associated with the single exactly. transaction. But, exactly. Some there kind are of great third party tools for that, but it's not easy to do without no, them. All right. So, I mean, we use a GUID, right? We pass a GUID all the way through right. effectively, and so everything gets stumped with the same GUID if it's the same. Right. Uh, then you get into all sorts of philosophical questions. We have arguments around the office that if this one thing spawns off two jobs, do they now both have the same ID? Or effectively, do they get new IDs? But they have the good that identifies them as part of the transaction. It's not a uniquely identifiable ID per stage of the execution path. It's This is part of the same thing. And yeah. the fact that they happen to be parallel is irrelevant, really. Right. They're still part of the path. I'm glad to that because, because you, you take my side in this <laughs> argument. <laughs> it's the easiest way to judge it to the intelligence of someone else is how much they agree with you. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because you could also go all asynchronous. Now, order doesn't matter, but it's still related to the same transaction. Right, exactly, yeah. It may, it may occur some time, uh, quite some time eventually sure. later. Yeah, it could be long-running. Right. Could be could be pushed off on a message queue to be picked up by something that's right. going to run. That's what we're talking about. This later. idea of a work or task queue. The work comes in on my front end and yeah. then Actually, it's heavy, and I don't want to actually process it because I want to respond quickly. Mm-hmm. I hand it off to a work queue. Something in the work is processing, and it could be quite a while before that sure. actually happens, right? Yeah. And you and now that identifier is the way you're going to find your way back to the data that's relevant in the first place. Right. Like, this yeah. is not just logging either. Right. And because one of the problems with the asynchronous workload, of course, is that there's no human being present to see an error. Yeah. So the errors like to come to an operator. Well, the operator's got no idea what operation was being performed on the front end. Sure. Unless you have some way of tying the two together to yeah. see what the user was originally requesting yeah. wrong. Well, that's that you know request-response pattern for, right. uh, for asynchronous calling where it's, it's just totally split. So and, the, and a lot of these ideas really help you, um, uh, you know, target kind of uh, modern environments like cloud, like containerized environments like Docker or, yeah. you know, uh, uh, AWS Lambda or Azure sure. Functions and, the, and these kind of uh, models. And there's, there's, there's a lot of power to this idea, I think, uh, for us all going forward saying, hey, you know, we really want to be empowered to declaratively create our, our production environments rather than saying, I need, a, I need a server. And the ops guy saying, oh, well, we could order one and stick it in your rack. That'll be about six weeks. Yeah, <laughs> and, then exactly. maybe, and then maybe we'll find some time to you know, to basically load the operating system on for you. Right, and you're like, right. I've lost the ball to live now. That's um, a little old school. <laughs> hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. Guess what time it is now? Yeah, it must be that happy time again. Yeah, it's time to change our reality from... There's an angry customer on the phone talking about their app, which is down. Yes. It's for you. <laughs> Change it from that to, I just sensed a slight disturbance in the force. Nice. Let me see if I can take care of this before anything happens. <laughs> <laughs> Where's my pepper grinder? Nice. Uh, it's actually time to give away a music to code by complete collection to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. Music to Code By, of course, is a set of 25-minute Pomodoro-sized, quiet and groovy instrumentals scientifically designed to promote focus. They'll get you into a state of flow and keep you there. .NET Rocks fans are being more productive with Music to Code By every day. And now you can download the entire 13-track collection for only 39 bucks. See what all this fuss is about. Check it out at musictocodeby.net. All right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner, Richard, is Todd M. Simmons. Oh, congratulations, Todd. Yay. I'll clap for you, sir. And uh, Todd just won the 13-track collection of Music to Code By just for being a member of the .NET Rocks fan club. If you don't know what that is, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world, and every show we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December we give away a $5,000 technology shopping spree to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club, but you have to sign up to win. And, of course, we ask our guest, Ian Cooper, if you had $5,000 to spend on technology today, what would you buy? So it's, a, it's a good question, isn't it? Uh, you guys, uh, I like this question, but I, I always try and deviate from the answer a bit. The, yeah. the, the one that's really interesting to me at the minute um, is, like, laptops. So I, like yeah. many people recently, you know, 
we went into the Mac world. Yeah. Nice yeah. piece of hardware. It is. Um, Windows great. Yeah. But you know what? <laughs> uh, I'm beginning to sense that some of the Surface stuff is looking really The, the really Surface nice. Studio? Yeah. That's a very pretty machine. And it it'll is. eat up most of $5,000 without even yeah. trying. Yeah. I'm not sure I really know that I need it for anything, but... You and me both, man. <laughs> but I still think I want one. I want to fool with that dial. I want to write yeah. some code for I mean, it. Yeah. I mean, maybe the reason I do not draw great art is because I just don't have the right tool. Just didn't have maybe. the right tool. That's right. I yeah. dropped some coin on a great machine, and now I can draw. You know, you can start simple with a paint by number or something. <laughs> you know? Maybe the thing is, I've got a small, like a, a small child. She surely would get benefit from it. I wouldn't be yeah, buying no it for kidding. myself. Yeah, yeah. You're looking it's an up investment for your kid. in her educational achievement. This is a, this is an opportunity to have her excel. Yeah. I, how can you not buy? But that, um, <laughs> it is one of the genuinely most sexy things I've seen from Microsoft in quite some time. And, I agree, and very unusual in the sense that it's. It's almost aspirational. We don't really need it. We want to possess it. Yes. It's like a work of art. <laughs> it is. Yes. Yeah. So and, that's, it, and that's not traditionally. Traditionally yeah. for Microsoft, it's kind of model of, uh, you know, we are workmanlike yes. in the sense It's totally that practical. It, it yeah. looks great. You want it, and you'll simply get it. Yeah. It's not that you're, you're evaluating it because it does. It meets your needs. Yeah. I've never wanted to pet a computer before. No. But, I, you know, I saw people do that with MacBook Airs, right? First time I got one of the Asus Ultrabooks, when those finally came along, then I'm like, oh, okay, I get it. This thing's beautiful. Like, it's literally lovely. But, yeah, I have a Surface Book. It is a very good machine. It doesn't incur the same sense of love, but that's... I have now laid hands on one of those studios. Have you? Uh, it is that gorgeous. So you think about the Surface really Studio, something. it is the kind of item where effectively you would leave it out when it's guests art. came around. Yes. Yeah. You want to see this thing. Yeah. And it, it, it'll get old fairly quickly for you because you'll constantly be getting people wanting to use the machine. Yeah. It's like, you know we're at a dinner party, right? Mm. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I took some uh, art lessons when I was a kid for a long time and did some oil painting even into my teenage years, and uh, I have gotten away from it for a long time just because it's it's kind of a mess. It's you know? kind of messy work, it, yeah. It's not something that you just do for an hour. It's a day-long commitment. And so I, I kind of like the idea of getting back into it in a digital tool that actually works physically the way I like to work. Yeah, and certainly my children having less access to paint would be a good thing. Absolutely. <laughs> for everybody. Uh, CES was just a few weeks ago. Yeah. And Dell announced a new monitor called the Canvas Monitor, which has the same metaphors. It's down, in fact, where the, where the uh, studio machine will go from upright to down low to sort of that, that drafting table yeah, position, yeah. the Canvas is always low. Is it's it really meant to be a separate screen in front of your main screen. Oh, okay. And then it's pen, touch, and they have their own version of the dial. Okay, you know, wow. how long have I been talking about this for the studio, right? <laughs> yeah. Seriously, ever since this original Surface came out, yep. I was like, you know, this is this would be a perfect uh, you know, way amazing to do an audio of, desk. Kit. Because, and it's interesting, isn't it? Because once one time when the Surface came out, the big table, and it was all very impressive. We weren't sure what we were going to do with it. Mm. And they reused the brand name. And you mm. were a bit like, well, how does this one relate to the other? And now Not you can kind of see the, the, right, the journey, does. though, now. Yeah. The screen that's on that studio screen, I mean, it's sensing that dial. Yeah. I think it's beyond simply capacitive touch. There's something else going on behind there. It right. is, it's different the, technology, I think, but the, but the, but the, but the vision, if you like. Yeah. The renaming of the old Surface table, they called it Pixel Sense. Yeah. And that is actually, I think, descriptive when you think in terms of stuff that, like dial. There's something behind those pixels that's able to sense things. And uh, I just want the monitor. I could build a better computer. <laughs> I would like to monitor, but uh, but I'm I've got a 43 inch 4K monitor on on one of my workstations, and so you got to sit a ways back from that. All right, it's a big screen. There's enough room to slide one of those canvases in there. And I, <laughs> I think I'm well on my way to building the Star Trek console in my office. Wow! So I'm looking at the Dell canvas that, right now. They have a pen and a dial. Like that's you said. what it's for. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and wow. I wonder if it uses the same Windows 10 stuff that the Surface. Yeah, I really don't know. I, I don't know anything about it. I know we get to build our own machine. It is meant to work with another monitor rather than be okay. an all-in-one monitor, mm. and, or and it's not an all-in-one computer, right? That's just I a guess screen. It's with probably touch. using the same kit. I mean, it I makes hope sense, so. right? Because it is very, it is very attractive. And while I will miss being able to pivot that thing up and down, I kind of like screen up here, screen down there. I do too. It definitely is. You're right. It's a very Star Trek con console yes. feel, isn't it? And the one down below is touch, and the one up above is just for looking at. So the one down yeah. below also probably becomes your keyboard, I imagine. Um, I 
my intent, once I can actually lay my hands on one of those things, is that I have a proper keyboard tray underneath that. So if I want a real keyboard, I if can you use it. Some real typing. If, if you really want to type, yeah, I mean, yeah, I'm yeah. pretty good at typing on a touchscreen, but nothing substitutes a good cherry keyboard. Yeah, I think mm-hmm. it's, it depends on your your personal preference for the feel of a key. Doesn't yeah, it? I mean, I quite like lightweight laptop keys. Yes, and I don't like ones with too much resistance. Yeah. But I know other folks really like to have a good bit of resistance mm-hmm. on their keys. Uh, I have a noisy keyboard and a quiet keyboard. It's almost <laughs> a mood thing, right? Mm. I like to use the quiet keyboard if we're recording and I need to make notes because you don't want to interrupt. But when it's time to really write, the rattle matters. Yeah, that's yeah. A few, about four or five years ago, some of, my, some of my colleagues went through this vogue of like, I think it's called DAS keyboard. Yeah. And it's completely, it had no letters on it. It was like <laughs> hardcore. Oh, like, no. I know how to type. You have yeah. no choice. You are definitely a touch Very type. German. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Very funny. I love it. We'll do it our way. Uh, you sort of skipped around in your um, uh, factor list here, but uh, what, what, we were just talking about logs. Did we talk about the development in production parity? aspect all right we, we did we did miss that one thanks that's, that's a good one to come back to um so there are a number of ways in which development and production go out of uh kilter so there's the obvious one that we all talk about the whole time which essentially is tools in the sense that do i use the same database the same message queue uh locally as well as essentially in production and Traditionally, sometimes that's been quite hard. People have actually, you know, opted for installing something quite different locally. And, and one of the problems with things like, you know, Brighter, the library we use, Celery for Python, other things which abstract effectively what is, say, the message oriented middleware you're using is it's very easy to use a different version locally. Um, and the idea is that's a bad idea because you get subtle differences that essentially... Sure, uh, this burns you all the time, yeah. right? And, and things like, you know, it also can mean that a bunch of things like Docker, effectively, you can spin up things like using your load balancer on your site behind it that reflects more on production. So it's a real asset to think that Docker is. The other thing it's useful for is that also you can just get your repo down and start something that's right, storing sure. everything else, right? And that whole horrible thing when someone new joins a team and they're yeah. keen to get started and, yeah, it's well, a, it's a lot of work to, to get install them everything on the machine. To a working right? environment. But there are two other factors basically about, about parity that we, we talked about last. One is to do with um, how different your production environment is to your current development work stream. Right. So it's under inventory waste, right? Things I haven't released yet into production. Mm-hmm. And that's actually quite a load. It's quite a cognitive load on developers. What What is production actually like by comparison to what I'm working on now? Right. Mm. Uh, and it's a problem in, say, agile context, this notion of feedback. The feedback's obviously slow if my code in production is quite a distance in time yeah. from the code I'm working on now. And that means the problems in production... I have to, you know, I have to switch context to figure out what it is that essentially I was doing uh, at that point in time. What I'm, as opposed to what I'm doing now, as we know, you know, context switching is expensive development, sure. right? And especially, yeah. especially if you get into days. Like I made a strong case with a customer, and this is an e-commerce site where they wanted to always run full regression testing on on the site with every build, and right. it was literally dozens of hours worth of tests and so we were setting up this huge cloud infrastructure the magic number for us was 15 minutes and the way i the the way i've described the 15 minute window is it's the time between the developer checking in the code going and getting to the car going to the bathroom getting coffee and getting back to his machine (laughs) if we can have the report in front of him before he picks something else up yeah then the time to fix is trivial. Because it's still in his brain. It's totally in his head. Yeah. A half an hour later, it's three, four times longer. Right, yeah. And if it's a day later, you could give it to anybody. Yeah. Because they're on to something else. Yeah. And and when we started that process, their build was now so lengthy and the regression so long, they were only running builds on weekends. Yeah. And so you submit code on a Monday, and you don't hear about problems with that code to the following Monday... That's a long time. And it almost gives you an excuse to sort of just check out and forget about it and go on to something else if it's going to take right. that but, long. And also the other thing it creates, of course, sometimes is this notion of plausible, uh, called plausible deniability where exactly. essentially the developer says, that wasn't me, yeah. right? Yeah. And, he, we, uh, and I have workplaces where the, you, know, you did have these long build times. Sure. Yeah. Uh, and it used to be somebody's job, literally, the guy who was in charge of the build that week, his job was literally to, to try and figure out who to pin? You know, who to pin the blame on? Sure, yeah. Whose code is this? Yeah. yeah, and who has to fix the issue? And that was you know, a huge waste of man, oh, uh, yeah. man hours. Well, and, and you know, it's never a simple thing like you did something wrong on Monday, right? Yes. Yeah. You know that probably actually did work on Monday, but on Wednesday somebody else contributed right. something else, right? And it, it, this is build up. And, and so when we could shorten that cycle up, I mean, the, the crazy part is everything went faster. 
people actually got more. They started writing code faster because they were less worried. The testing infrastructure can save us. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. They they were they were so careful because when it does come the following Monday and it is broken and you're you know a good conscientious programmer, you're tormented. Like you really do want to solve this. There goes the rest of your week. Yeah, and right. if you could have gotten it back to them that same day or in that fifteen minute window, I swear. That was the magic number. I see mm. what that is, right? It's that no one comes into work thinking, I'm going to do a bad job yeah. today. How am I going to screw up the su- system? Yeah, everyone <laughs> wants to succeed, yeah. right? So yeah. you, the, the more help you can give them, yeah. the better, right? And, it, and it's the, the crazy part now is this is absolutely feasible now because of the cloud, because of the elasticity. Yeah. That we just, let's light 100 copies of the website, split out the, the load for all those tests across all of them and consolidate it at the end. Yeah. And you can get it done that fast. Yeah, yeah. And the... Um, and the the kind of other thing that you, you see a little bit here is that there's a movement towards this idea of continuous delivery. And one mm-hmm. of the nice things there would be if I ship code every day, right? Yeah. Let's say uh-huh. actually, then, then actually the amount of code I ship is not going to be that huge, nope. right? It's going to be a few hundred lines. Nor should it be. Right. And exactly, but I can easily find an issue in a few hundred lines. Yep. Or I can easily roll it back. Yeah. Right. Or make roll a decision forward. tomorrow. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Um, the problem has become because we, we got used to shipping, you know, uh, thousands of lines of code. Yes. And the thing is, you know, when I first, we talked about my bio earlier, when I, when I first started, well, I used to literally send out disks. Yep. Okay. And, you know, then when you, when you have that, you, you're forced by choice into shipping thousands of lines sure. of code. That's where the model work. But in the world of the web and cloud, we, we shouldn't be working that way anymore. We're no. not shipping physical disks. Don't, don't mm. stack it all up. Yeah. There's no reason to. And it's, right. and it's harmful. It's also psychologically challenging. Like if you've got that much code invested and then there's problems, like you're now questioning weeks of your work, not sure, the stuff yeah. you did yesterday. You know, so the fact that you're actually lighter weight on it, much more willing to embrace the possibility that there are problems, you just, you're far less defensive. Well, I think the other mm-hmm. thing that you know, people talk about now is the saying that you know when you get in that, that right mindset, you reduce risk, and when you reduce risk, you essentially actually become more willing to take risks. Yep. So you might say the consequences hey, of failure are lower. Right. So this is new library I want to use. And before, it's always a question of like, well, you know, we're going to get some problems when we do that, mm-hmm. that kind of thing, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but, you know, if, it, if, you're, if, you're, if, you, if your ability to roll that back quickly is better, you're potentially more willing to, to make that choice yep. and see how it goes and get the feed, which is what Agile really is, right? Get that feedback quickly. Yes. Than you were before, where it became such a bigger decision that everyone was now making. Oh, no, where right. You're asking off. everybody to take risk with you, yeah, as opposed right. to we could try this. It's not going to hurt anything. We can go back if right. we're not happy with it, so nobody else has to be exposed. So, how's the adoption of this stuff? I mean, it seems like such a no-brainer from a benefit point of view, and from a velocity point of view, and from safety and security and everything else. Um, are people slow to to change? Because it does take a bit of a upfront commitment, doesn't it? To it does, I think. I think there, 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 there seems to me to be a couple of reasons why it, it, it can be slow. I think the first is that you're asking people to invest time and effort in um, essentially their process and their infrastructure rather than in necessarily deler- delivering something to a customer. Right, yeah, okay. And so, of course, that's always a question for people. You know, should I invest in this? Because that's, I could be getting a feature out. And, yeah. and of course, the problem with this is it's the classic, you know, jam today, jam tomorrow sort of thing. Right. It, the, the, you're going to go faster if you can take some time now, uh, to make, to help yourself go faster. Right. So you've got to invest essentially in productivity. Um, uh, and it, it is that question of taking that leap that says, you know, I want to go faster. And I'm going to be overall this year sure. faster. I think the conversation always ends up being, you know, the way I've pressed against it is, are we going to be writing any code next year? Hmm. Yeah. Because if we're not, let's not improve our systems. But if we are, then we'll have a year's worth of improvement under our right. belt by then. Yeah. And if we could save, I mean, people, you know, people talk about you know, productivity improvements, right? Yeah. And uh, when you talk, talk about productivity improvement, it's saying, let's say I could save 20% of your time, et cetera. Sure. Yeah. That's a phenomenal productivity improvement. You know, economists talk about productivity improvement in like, you know, of two, three, single percentage right? points. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, that's um, always a joke with software, right? We routinely improve companies' productivity by tenfold. Yeah. And uh, rarely embrace the ROI that that actually represents. Right, exactly. There's no industry that would tolerate a 50% failure rate in projects if when you had a win, it wasn't a big win. Right. And we have big wins. Yeah. You know, hopefully, where project failure rates have gone down,
down somewhat these days because I also think the winds aren't as simple anymore, right? Like the, the depth right, of our winds yeah. are much Once more upon complex. Once upon a time, it was we replaced the fire room. But, exactly. But yeah. But yeah. yeah, now it's definitely got uh, people expect uh, greater transitions for their business. Into, so, yeah, uh, big difference between the first time you went on the internet and the modern omni-channel sure. retail <laughs> model, right? Like it's it's there's subtleties and complexities that you're taking. Well, on, I even think right? we feel in that in the sense uh, nowadays of you know when I first started th- th- this gig. Um, you had to tell people what computers could do for them. Yes. Because they had, they, they were like, really? We could do that? Sure. Yeah. Wow. You know, this will save me so much time in my day. Yeah. Now people come to you with their kind of Star Trek vision of what they want their yeah. computer to do. And you have to kind of talk them down from, yeah. you know. Why yeah. do we still have to wait for the product to be delivered? Exactly. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, physics. <laughs> uh, a friend of mine who, who, sort of who works in it. kind of the machine learning space was saying to me that he went to see a customer who, kind of said we want you to perform some machine learning um we want you to basically demonstrate that our strategy is correct right yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow uh, uh, yes, i give you the answer now because the answer you want is yes you yeah know, let's just go straight to there uh earlier this week i wrote a quick piece off for a customer who was complaining about performance uh with a data center in panama for their customers in in hong kong and i showed them a picture of the globe and said the speed of light is a bitch. Right. <laughs> like, yeah. what are you going to, it's 250 milliseconds, kids. There's nothing you can do about that. Right, That's exactly. how far away it is. But no, yeah, you're right. I mean, I did, but it comes something, right? That the fact that we re- we have reached the point where our uh, users' expectations are now sliding right. up against the laws of physics. Basic Once upon a time, you know, they were glad if the picture downloaded onto their screen on their modem within 20 minutes. And now they, any kind of delay, they yeah. see as unsatisfactory. Yep. They were um, wanting two seconds, hundred percent response size for touches. Like, yeah. it's uh, the expectations are very high. The good news is the compute is remarkably powerful. Right. The the wire seems to be the limit these days. Mm. Right. Yeah. Most exactly. things. That's what's actually pinning us down. And Richard's working on that. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like I'm up against the speed of light, <laughs> and I've had people that say, "Ask me, can we use satellites?" It's like. That's farther, <laughs> yeah. not closer. Much more delay. It's 300 milliseconds each way to a geostationary satellite. Ask me how I know. <laughs> That's why we use the undersea cables. They're yeah, shorter. Right. A fiber optic cable directly through the earth is about as fast as it goes. <laughs> Except well, that's fairly that, tough to do. And, you know, and there's an interesting thing that's happening, which is, of course, some places are benefiting from the, where they are in terms of those cables. Oh, absolutely. You know, cable yes, Singapore. Right. right? I mean, one of the reasons that India became such a great outsourcing site is that there's just so much wire running from Europe to Asia yeah. past India. So they were able to um, be on that the, backbone. It's one of the reasons isn't it? Nairobi's taken off in Africa is mm-hmm. because they ran a whole cable out to the Middle East and then across didn't yep. they? and uh, it's doing very well from it actually case. changes the shape of the map when you start studying the way right. those cables route what's close and what's far away yeah you know and places like South Africa and New Zealand are kind of at the far corners of the internet yeah even a place that's fairly close to us Cuba mm-hmm. right has a they pretty dismal don't, they don't have the wires dismal yeah. internet they, They've had 50 years of being cut off from telecom. Right, really. yeah, yeah. And this is the consequence of it. But I'd really like to see that happen, you know. Because Talk that, about that's changing gonna, a culture. That would really change yeah, things. So yeah, it's very interesting. Have we covered all 12? It seemed like they flew by, honestly. And normally I look at 12 things and go, how are we going to do this in an hour? Well, I, They well, seem so sensible. We, we, wrapped, we wrapped a few together. So yes. uh, we talked about basically the bill one. We wrapped together the kind of ports, basically the uh, process model, effectively mm-hmm. stateless. Um, so, uh, which I want to talk about, actually, there. Um, what about the administration side? Is just that all that? How do you? And I and I totally relate to this because I've absolutely dealt with systems where admin code was just a special page off the main site, but admins because stuff was long running and high impact right. could cripple the whole system. We had to isolate them. Yeah. So I mean, essentially, their model is to, is money to use basically command line infrastructure processes that right. essentially you run. I mean, yeah. you know, you don't need to. Start, and spend a lot of money on UI for admin, and it's easier to automate basically command line tooling than it is to automate yes. any kind of. Um, well, any uh, any administration tool you build, it needs to be automatable right. for sure. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, their recommendation is just to stick the command line tooling in with the rest of the project because it's part of what the project does. And we were talking about earlier. Otherwise, essentially, end up in this model where the developers forget about it. I mean, I think it's interesting. I've not really done it that way, but I think it's interesting that with .NET now has this whole kind of command line infrastructure effectively in core, effectively that lets you, you know, do .NET. And then in your command, which basically you then configure it talks to, maybe an interesting way to really get that whole thing fitting together nicely. It'd be quite, quite slick at that point. Absolutely, yeah, it's very, it's very exciting, and it's it's nice to you know realize most people are doing some of these things anyway. 
So, so it's almost some like it's a like, checklist. Yeah. If you do all of these things, you get you maximize your benefit. Right. So I think some of these things like stateless, effectively, I think most of us now had that yeah. beaten into us quite a lot, et cetera. I, th- I think the thing is that the, 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 the important point to realize though in some cases is that there is obviously this synergy that when you get a number of the processes all together, like when you get, essentially what we were talking about at the beginning, when you get the, the port, so I'm not loading into an application server, you get them saying, well, I want to be stateless effectively, so scale out by basically by the process model. I want to effectively um, uh, have graceful, have fast startup and basically a graceful shutdown, etc. Mm-hmm. Th- those together start to move you into that model of saying, I can right. be now elastic, right? Mm. And when you talk, talk about the config requirements, you say, okay, now effectively I can essentially deploy easily effectively to containerized environments. Right. And they, they kind of, they kind of complement each other. So it's a bit, it's one of the, a bit like, you know, XP was where, right. although the practices in isolation may not be that unique, it's the combination together. of practices working together that give you this ability to, um, uh, work very well in these kind of more modern cloud, cloud environments. And it, and it feels like this is, you could have called this DevOps too, right? It is said that these are the set of processes. Yeah, DevOps is definitely high, high rated. I mean, I think that was things becoming quite strange, I think, in a way that the, um, it's it's merging so much now. Right. I mean, yeah. when you talk at this conference and people sitting in rooms talking about Docker and everything else, right. etc., yeah, right. the line is really. I mean, it's just success it's, for DevOps, right? In a way, sure. No, the line, it, the line is kind of devs vanishing. doing their own ops. Really, yeah. is what the, it is. The same way that agile. You stop talking about agile. You just talked about development, right? Mm-hmm. Right. DevOps is becoming. Well, operate, think, you know, because with the agile thing, right? You yeah. Know, who, whoever, who remembers working waterfall now? Apart yes. from some of the older the, ones of us here, and so most youngsters, I work. It's not a reasonable argument. They've anymore. never worked in in something that isn't an agile environment, mm, sure. right? So that's just normal, as far yeah. as they're concerned. It's just development. Right. It's there to serve bureaucracy. Um, and this, to me, reads like this is just the way you operate software. It is, yeah. 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 I mean, so I mean, there's a model that says essentially the operations team, their job really is to facilitate developers being able to have this infrastructure, yep. effectively, that lets them declaratively ask for whatever they need to run their application. To get those features out the door. Yeah, Absolutely. rather than having to do all the, the grunt work effectively mm-hmm. by making that actually happen. I totally agree. So what's next uh, for you, Ian? What are you, what are you working on? What am I working on now? Interesting. Um, Going uh, on holiday. Probably, <laughs> yeah. So uh, I'm uh, this, still working at Huddle, still, still architect there, still enjoying that, that process. Mm-hmm. Um, as well as kind of C Sharp, playing more with Python. And we're going to produce a Python uh, sit alongside with Brighter so you can do some interesting interop with uh, Python. Um, it's interesting, I went to uh, the Norwegian NDC last year mm-hmm. and a couple of people there were saying, you know, Python's a good skill for developers to pick up as a yeah. additional language. There's a yeah. certain amount of, uh, I think, Sympathy between the two, and I, I feel the sort of Guido and Anders has obviously had some kind of like uh, sympathy, and so it's a nice language if you can get over the kind of significant white space uh, thing, <laughs> right? Like, and it's dynamic rather than strong, right? But uh, but, but essentially the uh, not static rather, but the um, uh, I think it's useful for developers always to kind of uh, think of themselves as developers, right? Right, and um, having a, a number of languages in your toolkit can really help you do that, and I think there's. Uh, for .NET developers, one of the things that's useful about learning something like Python or you know Ruby or one of the others out there would be as we begin to deploy to um, uh, other environments other than Windows or we begin to do things like use Nginx as a reverse proxy rather right. than IIS, there's a lot of existing knowledge from those other communities about how to do that. Yeah. And it's easier to leverage that knowledge if you can kind of speak their language, even if you're not fluent, right? But, it, you know, you can have a nice conversation in their language with them about yeah. what they're doing. Sure. And, um, and you don't have to reinvent the wheel. Like people who come before uh-huh. here and they can give you some good hints. To avoid some of the dragons along the way. Yeah. And you know, a lot of people I, 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 I think who I've seen in the past, um, find leadership roles in given communities. A lot of what they've done actually in some cases is they've kind of wandered around another country and come back and said, they've got some great ideas over there. Yeah. And we should, we should, we should have some of these. Just take too. some of those along. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Uh, and so I think it's, a, I think it's always a useful exercise. I mean, there's this whole notion, isn't there, of, you know, learning your language every year. Yep. I mean, it's not a bad idea. I also think sometimes, though, it's worth investing in, in trying to build something in another language just a little bit. Yes. Um, uh, Deployable to, code is, right, is exactly. really an interesting milestone to get to. Yeah. Um, because that, that kind of thing that kind of helps you meet you some, the genuine challenges, et cetera. Yep. Totally agree. So there's a bit of that. Um, great. What am I, I, I'm putting out another couple of talks about the whole cloud native idea this yep. year and taking that forward. It fills a number of, 
uh, it collects together a number of things that I've been talking about over time, microservices, availability, uh, patterns. Um, uh, and so it's, it's a nice next step progression for me, I think, in terms of uh, what I want to communicate to people about. I think it's definitely, to me, uh, I'm very excited by this kind of application on uh, uh, infrastructure on demand, right? Mm -hmm. I, I, it's a very exciting idea, I think. It is. And very I think liberating. that, uh, you know, one of the things that I have to look at more, so Raj gave a great presentation about um, serverless, right? Yep, right. Uh, about uh, Lambda and basically um, Azure functions. And I think to me, that's a very exciting area to kind of poke at. And he, uh, Raj's talk was great. If you guys are, um, uh, we probably catch him somewhere else, but he gave a great talk about that. And, a great example of how, you know, nowadays with cloud environments, there are lots of little services and pieces that you can kind of hook together yeah. and you can build um, quite complicated applications sure. quite fast now by leveraging a lot of the services that exist. And out. there's so much cruft that goes away when you just use the functions yeah. themselves, all that support yeah. stuff. I also like that when you build that way, your services look like, just like the third-party services you're using in your app. Right, If exactly. you're using, you know, an Azure Identity Service, it's... Like it's an Azure function, right? right. It's just this, you know, we're all equal opportunity. It's not like your code is somehow different from everybody else's code once you get into that model. It's this thing, right? You know, I mean, although the DevOps movement has been great, I think one of the things that it, it exposes a little bit is that what I see in a number of shops as they go through a DevOps phase is that a lot of their, their, their most talented developers end up then shifting towards helping automate all their infrastructure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, Eric Hill made the point a, a while ago that actually we're, we're, we're a strange industry sometimes. So the most talented developers don't work on the customer's domain model and solve in their business problems right, yeah. they work funny. on all the tech yes uh, yeah. and in some ways really to move forward in terms of productivity the next step really we have to say well unless your domain is the tech unless you're essentially one of these cloud providers you're working right. in a cloud provider really you want the tech to disappear from you yeah. you to actually write solutions and that seems like. like the logical progression here where you're getting right. to a place where you simply do not own any infrastructure anymore yeah. yeah right or your infrastructure is so consistent that it can be managed by relatively few number of people and there's not a lot of conversation about moving it like i kind of like the idea that very talented people pour their time into updating the the our, the infrastructure and the processes of an organization but at some point that finishes and it's good enough that it's relatively right. little maintenance and then you can get back to writing code yeah but it's also for some people that is their domain right yeah. some, for some people that is their domain is providing that infrastructure yeah for other people it's whatever their customers domain is i think i think it's interesting I mean, several times been tried at this i know you, you guys remember vault uh, was that eric Meyer did oh yeah ago? that's yeah. right that, that was, was a kind of that experiment thing i think what yeah. was it was effectively you wrote the code in net and you declared to say where you wanted to run it and it would transpile some stuff like javascript for the yeah. front end I think what was interesting about what he was heading towards, I think which we may be heading towards, is this notion of saying, I really want to declare a whole lot of stuff that exists around my code. Right. Yeah. My code is, is modeling whatever the customer's problem space right. is. Yeah. And then declaratively, I want to run that over here yeah. right. at the end of a message queue. And I want to send this thing over by HTTP something else. Yeah. And that would be a very productive place to get to. And yeah, I think sure. we are really on the edge of that. We're sort of, we're staring at this with this one repo approach and so forth, but they're all different things. When it becomes one coherent thing, I think that's where we'll be. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. There's no substitute though for understanding what that stuff does. And that's where we right now right. have the advantage to learn it, you know, before before yeah. it just sort of disappears into the ether. That is, and, there's, and there's an interesting question, right? I think it's a very interesting question of the problem of if we understand what's under the under the hood because we basically went through that period of it, of it, of it being exposed to us. Yeah. We, we have a certain advantage that people that come later down where it's all invisible don't have. And is yeah. that a problem for them? I, I, it's an interesting question. Well, it could be a problem. Yeah. I mean, you know, everything's great until you have an error that you have right. no idea how to debug even. Yeah. It, yeah. It's asking me to talk to my administrator. I am the administrator, and I don't know what to exactly. do. Well, I mean, it's like the you know the, the parallels. People talk about the fact that once upon a time, you know, everybody knew a lot of people knew how to maintain their car's engine, and it was quite common for people to to fiddle with their did. car engine yep. and do stuff. But yep. nowadays, you know, you, you open your engine; it's a black box controlled by a computer that's yep. phoning home basically right. to the dealership, and, and you really shouldn't touch, touch it. it. If you want yeah. to change your oil filter, you either have to put it on a lift or take the whole engine out. Right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And and uh, but in a sense we're liberated from car maintenance, yep. right? Yeah, right. And, uh, and car reliability is dramatically higher in the process, right? That's what's in interesting um, about that. So I think some people will still know how to get into the weeds and that stuff, but I think that's because that will be their specialism. Yeah, and yep. I think the rest yeah. of us will 
moving in a different, in a, in a, in a, in a more liberated circle for solving um, customers' problems. Yeah, right. Uh, Absolutely. That'll be a good day. Yeah, but I mean, if you even look at something like, you know, Bright, which I work on, you know, hey, what, what was our goal? Our goal was to say, you can take a command as a handler, and it can be in process, or it can be out process over a queue, and it's kind of invisible to you. You do it declaratively. So it's mm. just aiming for the same goal. And, and I expect, you know, something like service will make that what we've been working on as a project eventually redundant, and that's fine. Yeah. I think it's, a, it's a step forward. It's a similar goal to what we have. Absolutely. Very nice. Ian, thank you so much. It's hey. always great to hear you talk, and especially about great stuff like this. Awesome. I love, love coming here, guys, so thanks much. Awesome. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Plop Studios a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter van.